Ready to take a deeper look at where history, politics, and economics all intersect? Well, then you've come to the right place. Each week, here's where we pull back the headlines and focus on the big trends, the stuff that actually shapes our future. Through the noise, we focus on the signal. I'm your host, Neil Howe, and this is Demography Unplugged. Today is May 12th, 2020, and this is Demography Unplugged. Welcome back, everyone. As we did last week, I have on the podcast my fellow analyst, Christian Ford, who is still in uh, parts uh, unidentified. Uh, you're still up in Maine. Is that right, Christian? Yes, I am still up in Maine, right outside of Portland. Things okay. are pretty shut down. Pretty shut down. Uh, I imagine uh, very compliant Portland. Uh, we, we talk about that as a a blue dot and a red sea up in Maine, a little bit like Austin, yes. Texas. <laughs> I think um, you do have protest movements, I guess, up there. Yep. Kind of if the, you go you up know. to Augusta, you know, some of the more northern citizens of the state are protesting and want to reopen the economy. Right. Um, and actually, uh, that's one of the things we want to talk about a little bit. Uh, who is opposed to uh, strict containment? Who is, um, you know, who is not? Some of the things we're going to talk about today, uh, the first is just that. We're going to talk about the uh, age gloss on U.S. surveys about containment. And and even before that, Christian, it just actually is a way of, of, of introducing that topic. The common no-win argument against containment you hear, um, which is that, uh, you know, it's not going to change the number of people who die anyway. Uh, it's just going to make us uh, more miserable along the way, and it will destroy our economy. And I, I want to talk about that a little bit, um, about success and failure, about containment. But we are going to talk about uh, the differences in age on U.S. surveys about containment. I think it has some real surprises for most people, um, not to those of us who study generations, uh, but I think it's it goes against what a lot of people assume to be the positions of young people on a strict national policy. I also want to talk about debt. Uh, we talked about it a bit last time. We had a big, uh, I, I wrote a big uh, newswire piece uh, that came out yesterday on debt. And we're going to talk a little bit about the extent of debt uh, and the enormous, uh, massive surge in, in uh, deficit spending we're seeing in high-income countries all over the world. But the longer-term consequences and under what conditions do we have to worry about paying back debt? And this is a little bit counterintuitive because what I'm going to argue is that you want paying back the debt to be a problem. <laughs> Because if it's not a problem and you think you're going to be struck forever at zero interest rates, you've got a bigger problem, <laughs> namely an economy which is no longer going to grow. Um, so I, it's, it's a little bit, I want to wrap our mind a little bit about that and how to think about debt and debt service and, and the cost of debt. Uh, as always, we're going to talk later about markets, uh, how they've done. We're going to go over economic indicators. The big one that we're going to cover is the, um, uh, you know, non-farm payroll data uh, that was out, gave us the first clear indication of what the heck is going on in the United States. We are going to cover um, 
politics around the world, some interesting stories, some really unusual stories. I think we have one that we're going to talk about, about uh, the uh, new president, president, right, of El Salvador. Yes, he is um, president. He is president and a very unusual president. And if you want a very interesting uh, insight on, you know, the a possibility of, of the, the emerging style of authoritarian millennial leadership, right? Uh, maybe along with um, the new uh, bin Salman leadership of Saudi Arabia. I'm just thinking about some of the millennials we see around the world. Sebastian Kurtz is an interesting example. Um, oh, what's her name in uh, Finland? Who am I not oh. thinking of? But you remember, now she she is more what you would call the um, sort of more conventional idea of what do you think, how you think a young person would behave. We're going to talk a little bit about some emerging young leadership. Uh, and among the stories we're going to talk about a little bit is Australia and the case they are making against China uh, and the worsening tone of uh I guess you'd just say geopolitics in general, but certainly uh, between the West and China, the United States and China in particular. Uh, so we got a lot of things uh, to cover. Um, as always. <laughs> as always. Yeah, as always. Um, let me start out by talking about uh, the no-win argument against containment. Uh, you hear it all the time, and I think uh, it's been most eloquently put forward by uh, Anders Tegnell, who's the uh, health minister in uh, Sweden. He's the leading proponent of uh, the, the herd immunity strategy, uh, which, as I, I have argued many times on this show, is a respectable strategy. It's unclear whether you could actually practically implement it, uh, but it is a strategy. It actually gets you to an endpoint where you solve the problem. Uh, whether we can actually implement it uh, and keep all the you know the elderly safe and the people with pre-existing conditions safe, I mean, the only way I think you can implement it is put them all on an island um, and then and then you know quickly get everyone together. It, it it actually would require as much national supervision and regulation than containment, in my opinion, to do correctly. But I think it. The uh, herd immunity is sort of the reigning argument of the laissez-faire people, the people who don't want national policy, national political leaders to do much. It's sort of the the um, the libertarian, you know, I, I don't want government in my life kind of strategy. Uh, just do nothing and, and this thing will go away. Um, and I think an argument you often hear from this camp, and I think you've heard it from the White House, quite frankly. You hear it occasionally from governors and you hear it from mayors is that it doesn't do anything. You're still going to get the same number of deaths. You may get them a little bit later. Um, Anders Tegnell has said that explicitly. It doesn't change the ultimate outcome, but it does destroy your economy while you're doing it. Um, so it's, it's a no-win strategy. So why do you implement it? We might as well open up as much as we possibly can, and this thing will sooner or later be over. Am I, am I stating that about right? Um, Christian, am anything I'm missing from that argument? No, I would say that's the argument of these people that... Right? Yeah, you get the same numbers. Yeah, you get the same numbers, and so we might as well do this with least economic damage as possible, and, you know, particularly uh, get over any difficulty with, uh, with young people losing jobs and all the rest. I want to suggest that this is not a correct... Um, this, this argument does not portray the facts correctly. In fact... Uh, containment is a strategy. It is not just a policy. 
And the end point of that strategy is actually to have the best of both worlds. Not many infections, not many deaths, and actually opening up your economy again, right, safely. Uh, and we have seen this strategy pursued successfully by a number of countries, Hong Kong, Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand. And there may be signs that a couple of northern European countries, I, I just single out, you know, Germany and Austria, may be on the verge of actually saying that they've been implementing the strategy correctly. The key is, is to contain long enough and strictly, I should say, suppress long enough and strictly enough that you get new infections down far enough that you can actually identify them, trace them, follow up on them, and truly know where the infections are. And at that point, once you've gotten new infections down to that level, uh, you can actually start opening up the economy again. So you have the best of both worlds. Case in point, Taiwan. Now, Taiwan, you would say, was dealt the worst possible hand. Uh, you know, they're, they're, a, they're a small country uh, right across the strait from China. They have a lot of business dealings with China. A lot of Taiwanese actually work in China and vice versa. Huge amount of travelers from China and from Wuhan in particular coming into Taiwan. So they had an enormous sort of infestation problem immediately. They are a relatively old population, as certainly as old as the United States. So you'd say, how in the world are they going to do? Well, they did just great, in fact. They've been probably the most successful country in the world. You know how many deaths there have been from the virus in, in Taiwan? Six. Six, Six. deaths, wow. They have, uh, they have identified all the new infections. They, um, uh, they trace every single case they know. They have a big uh, 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 a team on the ground, and they use, uh, obviously, uh, you know, cell phone apps, they use uh, video cams on doors. I mean, they, they, they enforce. Uh, but the result is, is that Taiwan now has a level of mobility in terms of a workplace, people going to work, that's only 5% below normal what it was before the pandemic. You know where the United States is? We're still 30% below normal. And on our current course, I wonder how long it's, you know, when and if it's going to get much above that, as long as we continue to have so many new infections, regardless of what government proclaims, right? I mean, the government right. can, can loosen up all at once, but if people are afraid to go to work, uh, you're not going to get much commerce and you're not going to get much, uh, uh, you know, you're not going to get many employees going into the workplace. So this is my point. Um, I don't know. We see New Zealand now and both in New Zealand and Australia. Okay, you could say so far they're a little bit helped by the weather, but they are on the way. Both countries are targeting no new infections, and they are realistically on the way to actually doing it. They're they are getting new infections now to just a handful a day. They can follow them. They can trace them. Um, Germany and Austria uh, are not quite nearly as good as that. Uh, but but they're but they're working on it, um, and you know Angela Merkel, she's uh, she's um, I mean she her her own background as a scientist, you know, helps her give her an, uh, actually a great familiar and expertise on dealing with uh, sort of epidemiological questions. So these are countries that have taken it seriously. They've uh, they've been strict from the start, and now they're on the verge of actually opening up safely in a way which we are completely unable to. So this is where we should be looking at. Now, I think the only argument you can make for containment 
um, or I say the only argument you can make against containment is actually kind of a um, a second best strategy. It's basically just giving up on the U.S. You could say, well, you know, we can't just we can't do that. We're too politically dysfunctional in this country. So basically, next best. <laughs> if you can't do containment, what can you do? And I think that is actually not a bad argument. If you're an individual mayor or an individual governor, you can't set national policy. So you can't, you know, prevent everyone else from doing whatever they want. And uh, part of part of the strategy of containment, by the way, is you need to be able to carefully monitor anyone coming into your region from the outside. All of these successful containment uh, countries have very strict uh, border restrictions of people coming in, coming out. That's partly what you do to have containment, right? Um, if you're an individual governor of a state like Rhode Island, uh, well, what can you do? I mean, you have a lot of people coming in and out. Containment, almost by definition, has to be a national strategy. So we are disadvantaged in the United States by having a federal system of government, unfortunately. Uh, typically, at a time of crisis, we can unite and actually have strong national leadership. Uh, but in this case, we don't have that. So if you're an individual leader within this country, you kind of have to say, what's second best? I can't do containment. So what's second best? Okay, open up as much I can, try to bear all the deaths we're going to have. But I guess that's the best argument. I'm trying to be respectable here. I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to think <laughs> of good things to say about the argument against containment. And I think that's the argument that makes sense. Uh, for various reasons, uh, cultural, political, whatever, uh, we just can't do that in this country. So therefore, next best, right? I think that's a good segue, uh, Christian, to lead into um, our next story, uh, which is right. a little bit about the, this whole question of, of um, the uh, attitudes on, on, on strict containment. And last week, we talked about how the vast majority of Americans really supported strict containment. Uh, there's only a minority who didn't. But we did another story this week that actually did a, a follow-up on this and actually looked at differences in attitudes by age. And they're very revealing. Um, I think normally you'd think, well, you know, it's, it's the old people who are fearful of this virus and, you know, they... they kind of more respectful of national policy. So, you know, they're going to be more interested in strict policy. Um, and, and the young, you know, the young, right? They're risk takers, <laughs> daredevils, you know, they're not going to care. We found exactly the opposite. And that's fascinating. And that's a real commentary on who millennials are and basically who boomers are as generations and how, they're, how they have redefined uh, their phase of life. Um, and... When asked about containment, it turned out across the board that Americans under 30 were more in favor of stricter containment than older generations, particularly generations over age 65. So that, that's, that's the first kind of amazing finding. Uh, if you ask people the question, um, do you think there are not enough restrictions? 28% of Americans under 30 said yes, <laughs> we're, we're not strict enough. Only 15% of Americans over age 65 said that. And I think the most amazing question to me was when you ask people, should there be a national strategy to deal, you know, shelter in place strategy? Should this be, be done from a national level? 69% of Americans under 30 said yes. Over age 65, 48%. 
to me, that's an amazing difference. And in fact, just look at a lot of these, these uh, you know, protesters out there. See a lot of Xers and a lot of uh, boomers there, right? Um, you know, don't tread on me. You know, leave me alone. You know, uh, get the establishment out of my face. Uh, you, you, you see a lot of that. And, and I would say that, um, you know, if you had gone back, and this, is, this speaks to generational replacement and the impact of generational aging, but if you had gone back to the late 1970s, I guarantee you that seniors back then would have favored tough national policies. I mean, that was the GI generation. They had been through, you know, Pearl Harbor and D-Day, and they'd been through the Korean War, and they, 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 you know, gave us the American high. That was a generation that when needed, yeah, you know, uh, shut this country down, you know, everyone got in line. Um, and similarly back then, you would have found young adults in 1979, right? Boomers. Their attitude would have been kiss my ass, right? I mean, right. I'm not following any of your stupid rules, right? This is completely switched around. And when people ask me what's interesting about generational change, that to me is interesting, right? And, and that to me is a sign you've gone from a post-crisis era to a pre-crisis era. When you find actually younger people advocating more for these order-imposing top-down strategies and the older people saying, no, no, laissez-faire is just fine. I, I want my individual rights guaranteed. That you know we've entered into a completely different season of history. So people often ask me, you know, what are, what are the telltale markers I should be looking for? Well, that's the kind of telltale, you know, marker you're looking for, right? Um, think about it this way. In terms of self-interest, millennials have every possible reason not to want a strict containment policy. They're the least likely to get sick from COVID-19. They're vastly less likely to die from it. And they are, as we know, we've looked at the data, they're much more likely to have been fired because of it and to be unemployed because of it and to have, you know, a, take a huge financial hit because of these containment strategies. Yet they're more supportive. I ask you, Christian, and you're a millennial, you tell me what the hell is going on there. Um, I think that that's an interesting generational fact. Well, Neil, I think the thing is with millennials, I, I think it's a guilt complex. You know, we've been told that we're asymptomatic carriers and we're afraid if that we go out, we're going to give it to someone who's older, then they're going to end up dying. Yeah, well, that's millennials. You're always, you know, worried about, uh, about uh, right. you know, someone else, right? Uh, your, your, your friend, your mom. Uh, it was another interesting finding from an earlier survey we did is we found that uh, the, one of the biggest worries for millennials was for their boomer parents uh, not taking the proper precautions. Um, so, you know, boomers uh, uh, often write these uh, stories. Boomers and exes write stories about millennials partying and going to the beach. And, uh, you know, <laughs> early on in March, there was a, a few big stories on that. One of them in the Wall Street Journal about millennials partying while other people were dying. Uh, but interestingly, when you, um, when you poll millennials, uh, their attitudes uh, uh, on personal safety and the changes in behavior are very close to that of older people. And they're one of their biggest worries, particularly when they're living, you know, with older people or, or going, 
you know, to see their mom or dad every day, as many of them now are, uh, is, uh, is just that. Uh, yeah, asymptomatic carriers. Well, let's, let's move on. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, while we still have some, uh, while we still have some time, um, I want to talk about um, uh, uh, debt uh, and um, uh, a piece we ran last time on, um, on uh, indebtedness. Um, this was, uh, I can't believe, I think it was, what, when was it, last week or the week before we did a piece on, uh, right. on debt? And and these these figures, Christian, just are unbelievable. As you know, when we were uh, before the uh, pandemic hit, uh, the the uh, federal government was on track to run a deficit of four point nine percent of GDP. Why, God knows. Uh, but that would have already been one of the largest deficits of the post-war era, uh, with a red-hot economy. Go figure. Uh, but it turns out now. Now that the pandemic is in there, the CBO is now projecting we will clock in at 17.9% of GDP deficit. 17.9% uh, is actually larger than total federal outlays in many, in many years since World War II. Um, and it's exceeded, I think, as we said before, this deficit level has been exceeded in U.S. history in only three years, 1942, 1943, and 1944. That was the peak of America's total war against fascism. Um, this, during the Civil War, the Union might have come close to this figure. Also during World War I, it might have come close. Measured in um, greenbacks, now that we're talking about the Civil War, the 2020 deficit will weigh in at roughly $3.7 trillion dollars. Uh, I am old enough to recall the astonishment of economists uh, back in 1981 when President Reagan and OMB Director David Stockman proposed running a deficit of just over $100 billion. <laughs> Ooh, $100 billion. Well, this deficit is 37 times larger than that, you know, historic blockbuster uh, that uh, Reagan proposed. Um, in terms of net Federal debt held by the public, uh, it's going to jump from 79% of GDP at the end of, um, of uh, FY 2019, uh, which just ended, uh, to 108% of GDP at the end of FY 2021. That's a 29 percentage point gain in just two fiscal years. Uh, that's the largest in American history, bar none. Uh, this is being done around the rest of the world. Um, I believe that the OECD is now estimating uh, the average high-income government will run a deficit of about 11% of GDP this year, uh, and it will push total public debt in all high-income countries to about 122% of GDP. Um, and, you know, this is... Um, as usual, as, as happened in 2009, 2010, the U.S. Is, is more fiscally aggressive than the rest of the world. That's the exorbitant privilege we have at being able to borrow in the world's reserve currency. Uh, but I think we're all on right. board this time, right? Uh, almost, almost all countries are doing this. Um, is this going to cause a big challenge uh, to economies after the crisis is over? I think many of us recall a book uh, that was actually published back in 2009 
by Ken Rogoff and Carmen Reinhardt, and it was called This Time is Different, Eight Centuries of Financial Folly. And it had these wonderful tables, you know, with uh, uh, defaults and, uh, and uh, 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 debt by various countries going back to the 16th century. Uh, and, and the two of these authors wrote that when national indebtedness exceeds 100% of GDP, it tends to suppress economic growth and raise the possibility of, um, or I should say probability, of, of sovereign default. I will say this, in the years since that book has come out, its thesis has been attacked and challenged. Uh, you just think of how many governments like Japan have gone way past that limit with seemingly no ill effects. And, and now that interest rates in so many economies, including the United States, are down near zero, zero, even below zero in some cases, do we really need to worry about debt that has virtually no cost of carry? So that's kind of an interesting conundrum, right? Um, and, and my answer is this, and this is kind of the, what, what I would call the catch-22 of this you know, clever rebuttal to uh, Rogoff and Reinhardt, and that is that <laughs> near-zero interest rates can only persist indefinitely in a world of falling inflation expectations and a near-zero real rate of return on capital. So think of that. Um, falling inflation expectations is a sign of imploding aggregate demand, and a zero rate, real rate of return on capital is a sign of terminal demographics, you know, stalled productivity, uh, no competitiveness in, in your markets. Uh, so to say to a government that your vast debt will never be a problem due to zero interest rates is really tantamount to saying your economy will never grow again. <laughs> so... So it's kind of that's the ultimate good news and bad news. So I think you have to assume that any sane government will hope that its economy returns to a healthy positive interest rate. And so then you say, well, okay, if that happens, how do you, you know, well then obviously then debt service is a problem, right? How do you handle it? And we've gone through this before. I don't want to, you know, belabor this here. I, I think we covered it before. Obviously, the most direct solution is to uh, raise taxes and cut spending, and you know, run a surplus, pay some of it back. That's going to be for a variety of reasons. That's going to be very difficult for today's high-income economies to do. Uh, a next favorite standby of many countries over over the recent decades, over the centuries, certainly, is called financial repression. And here, the idea is to Force feed, force feed your national debt, uh, often through banks, at below market rate interest to domestic households by giving them no other choice to save, right? Uh, and this was done in America. I mean, throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, this is done and uh, has been done by most countries. And um, it's still in use in China. Uh, but I would say in today's deregulated financial environment, this would be a tough sell today. Uh, we have so many options, you know, to engage in other kinds of savings, although I think we may, to some extent, return to that. Um, there's inflation, which is a short-term fix. Uh, obviously, you do inflation once until everyone catches on. You have to roll over your debt, and then you're dealing with higher interest rates. So inflation is a short-term solution. A default is a short-term solution. I would say one advantage of, uh, of inflation is that, uh, or default, is that most of today's high-income countries have a large share of creditors who are not 
citizens, right? They're abroad. I believe uh, 39% of the U.S. federal debt is now held by foreigners. Um, so if we, you know, inflate our way out of it, who are we hurting? Well, a lot of people are hurting are abroad, so who cares about them, right? I mean, we're not going to slash Social Security benefits to make sure we pay our interest payments right. to China on time, right? <laughs> I think you got that. So, so that that's the populist angle. Inflation uh, punishes creditors; it uh, rewards debtors. Uh, so you can kind of see how you'd see a populist program coming into that. I think we're going to see both inflation. Um, I think we're going to see. Uh, uh, I think we're going to see uh, some deficit reduction. I think we're we're going to have to uh, uh, we're going to have to clear out uh, a lot of the. Uh, the the promises, uh, the, particularly the entitlement promises that are already uh, kind of built into our current federal spending, uh, I think that's going to have to be part of the mix. But here's my final comment on this, uh, and that is my biggest fear is not coping with rising debt service costs. My biggest fear is that we won't have to do anything because the whole premise of my argument returning to a healthy, positive interest rate will never come to pass, right? Imagine that future. That's a worse future. And I, and I would say this. I mean, a nightmare COVID-19 recovery scenario is healthy margins and equity prices uh, uh, for all of the big S&P incumbents that have all been bailed out by the Fed uh, and, 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 and amid amid what you'd have to say would be the wreckage of all their smaller competitors. And in this scenario, you know, all these, these giants with all their leverage will face even less competition than before. Uh, you can imagine a world of, of high P.E. ratios and dividends and buybacks for them, but a world of zero marginal return on capital for every outside investor and zero bargaining power for workers in the sort of 90% economy that The Economist is now talking about, right? Where you have a sort of a, 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 a perpetual sort of surplus of, of workers out there. Um, this contributes to something that I've, I've, I've written about a lot in the past. We have a big video on our site about it, which is declining a business dynamism being fostered by increasing market concentration of the big players. Uh, I think you see a lot of this, even in the response of the market. Uh, the the you know five big tech companies uh, that are expected to do very well out of this uh, are now twenty percent of the S and P five hundred. I mean, what kind of what you know? We are not seeing the typical uh, post crash revival in you know value stocks. <laughs> We're just seeing the big people get even bigger. So my question is, do you think the market is already, in a way, pricing in this nightmare future? I mean, there, there are two sort of um, theories about, about how well the market's done and, and how, how good a recovery we've seen in the S&P, um, you know, following, following the crash in, in mid to late March. One is um, the V-shaped recession. Uh, you're going to get you know, recovery much quicker than anyone thinks. And these big, these big bag numbers are just, you know, a, a quick passing, you know, a flash in the pan. The other interesting scenario is that, no, no, maybe they're not pricing that in. They're just going to pricing in the fact that the big winners are going to do even better than ever. 
even amid a no growth economy and uh, zero rate of uh, marginal rate of return on capital. Um, and that's in some ways an even scarier scenario. Um, speaking of industrial structure and how it how it may shift in some fundamental ways uh, after the crisis, uh, the whole idea of a, a growing two-tier economy, um, you know, incumbents that have large margins, large rates of return, and, and everyone else who, who has neither. Um, I'm wondering a little bit, too, about, uh, about just a change in the division of labor and how much we will continue to gain from international division of labor on things like food. And I noted, Christian, uh, uh, that we had some interesting pieces recently on how countries are dealing with the challenge of providing food to their populations at a time when border restrictions are rising everywhere. Yeah, we saw some pieces in The Economist. There was an op-ed in The New York Times. And basically the idea is I I believe about 80% of the world's population gets some amount of their food is imported. And as borders are closing down and trade routes aren't running as they normally are, some countries are finding themselves without important parts of their diet that they always relied on from foreign countries. So some people have been arguing that countries need to become more regional in their food production. So when these major crises happen, they are well prepared. But at the same time, you and I have talked about this also means prices will be more expensive. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you you, you want you, you want to eat kiwis, uh, but you don't want to import from New Zealand, uh, uh, and you live in Shanghai, you might be in trouble, right? So right. I, that that's kind of that's kind of the issue. Everything will become more expensive, and I think here's an interesting question: in that, as we move toward a post COVID nineteen uh, economy, which is also to some extent is going to be a, a post-globalist economy, really not the same level of globalization we knew before. Uh, we're going to see a reversal of some of those gains from di- from international division of labor. I mean, the thing that like every econ 101 textbook, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, Britain producing cloth and Portugal producing wine. I mean, that kind of thing. Um, and I'm wondering, I, I, I saw... A great piece. I thought it was very instructive in um, in Fortune magazine uh, called "Why to Fight COVID: We Need a Military Mentality." You know, we we need military people to take over, and the argument was very interesting. They said, you know, the military doesn't rely on markets; they stockpile everything in advance. They have huge inventories. They go over every. You know, they basically. They they don't they don't just plan a a jet. They have to build it and actually keep those things because you'll need it immediately. And all of your suppliers, the ones you really rely on, have to be domestic. And it it reminds me about how the military still functions the way many corporations did, you know, back in the early post-war decades. Uh, they had large inventories. Uh, they had close relationships with their suppliers. We got away from all that in the 1980s and 90s, um, you know, uh, kind of just just that 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 whole idea of just in time delivery and uh, very extended supply chains and making sure you 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 didn't really 
build anything that you didn't need at the moment, right? I think that was that was the idea. You 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 know, asset light, inventory light, everything light, except the new ideas that you specialized in. And I think now we see collapsing supply chains and we see a very different mentality take take charge. And I, I'm wondering whether that's not just going to be in uh, COVID policies, but it's going to reshape uh, the thinking in most uh, uh, C-suites of most firms. So there we are. Um, why don't we take a little bit of look at markets? Uh, we right. didn't really talk about that at all, but we better get on to that. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Neil. Well, over the last five market days, the S&P 500 is up 3.08%. And as for the global Dow, it is up 2.23%. And finally, if we look at volatility, the VIX closed yesterday at 27.54. And if you remember last week, it was always in the mid-30s range. So that is coming down slightly. Yeah, well, that's, uh, I guess, just basically a continued extension of what we've already seen, right? And the right. uh, the um, once again uh, the S and P five hundred beating the global Dow. I don't know how many weeks in a row we've seen that. Um, anyway, more of the same it seems on markets. Um, what about uh, economic data around the world? All right. Well, if we start in the U S. this morning, uh, the Small Business Optimism Index came out for April, and it was at ninety point nine, and this actually beat expectations of eighty, and it was its lowest reading since March two thousand thirteen. So apparently there's a little more optimism than was expected. Yeah. And then also last week we got the non-farm payroll, which showed in April we lost 20.5 million jobs. This is its biggest drop ever recorded. And the largest decline came in leisure and hospitality, which lost 7.7 million jobs. Well, nothing nothing really, I guess, unexpected there. I I will add... Uh, on these two data points you just suggested, uh, the the a lot of people who are unemployed are not searching for work either because of COVID or because they are you know believe they're furloughed, uh, they're going to get their jobs back. Uh, but the U six right. unemployment rate is twenty two point eight percent and not fourteen point seven. That's also the highest uh, we've seen since we've been keeping this data. Uh, we never kept a U6 unemployment rate during the 1930s. <laughs> I think we've even thought of that about that. Here's one, here's <laughs> one interesting ratio that, that I found arresting. The employment to population ratio, that is to say how much of the U.S. population is working at all. Uh, it, in our last uh, recovery, it peaked at 61 point, uh, 61% in 2019. Its all-time high uh, was 64.6% in 2020, uh, excuse me, in the year 2000, and that's before boomers started retiring. Obviously, that is lower now. We have an older population. A lot more people are over age 65 now, right? And the lowest it normally ever hit uh, back in the 1950s was around 56%. During a bad recession in the 1950s, it might have hit 55%. Of course, that was when uh, most women, particularly most married women, were not in the workplace, right? Uh, We had more of household economies going on back then. Uh, Well, that ratio has just hit 51.3%. That is way below anything we have a record of, right? Uh, uh, That's actually... uh, uh, more than twice the decline uh, from 2006 
uh, down to 2009. I mean, that's just epic. I mean, it's just a straight line down. The the NFIB index is a really interesting point, um, and I'm I'm torn here between different indicators. There was a uh, there's an international um, small uh, business uh, study that is, is actually called the COVID-19 Small Business Survey, which is actually run by Yale, Princeton, and a bunch of academics. And they actually do survey 8,000 uh, small U.S. businesses, and they found that on March 28th, uh, 37% of small business owners say they did not expect their business to recover in two years. And by April 20th, that was 46%. So uh, that does not look good at all. Uh, maybe it was even worse in April 1st and it's come back a bit. So maybe the NFIB is correct. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, these, these num- I, I find it interesting. And we're going to see how the NFIB number uh, changes. Uh, what do we see around the rest of the world? Uh, we really only got important numbers out of China last week. Uh, the Cixin Services PMI came out for April which was 44.4. That is its straight third straight contraction. Um, so services are still not doing well. And when we look at composite for China, it came in at 47.6. Yeah. That was also its, the third straight month of contraction. Yeah, that's not a good sign. I mean, the, the Tsai Shen is, is mainly uh, uh, non-state-owned businesses. It's probably a little bit uh, worse than um, the, you know, the, the big manufacturing companies. Uh, but that is not a good look. Uh, we needed to see some recovery in China. So you can see uh, China, you know, the 90% economy, maybe it's more like the 80% economy for now. Um, it's it's not looking it's not looking great. And this is the danger, right, looking forward. I mean, China, you were looking right. at China, you're looking at your future. Uh, because it's about a month and a half, uh, a month and a half ahead of the United States, uh, they are—they've uh, had more success, probably, in containment than we have in the United States. But even they are finding it hard to fully open up uh, their businesses. And I would say, you know, s- some of the same thing we see on the retail side. Well, I'm sure, Neil, that you saw in Wuhan, they had uh, six new cases on Sunday. Yeah. Well. You know, we would be delighted if we only had six new cases in a city. Yeah. Um, but but again, this is China, so I don't right. I don't really know how many cases they really had, and and how they're measuring them. I'm a little bit more concerned when I see um, you know in Seoul they have uh, they're they're dealing with a, a second wave, um, I guess a super spreader, uh, and and Germany too. I mean, we see these these rolling things, uh, and we're going to keep. We're going to keep seeing them as time goes on. Yes. What else do you see? Well, do you want to start now and talk about uh, Nayib Bukuli, the president of El Salvador? Yes. We were going to talk about uh, millennial authoritarians. I find that a fascinating subject. The new face of authoritarianism. Exactly. (laughs) Well, he's kind of an interesting character. He's 38 years old. He's his background. He managed nightclubs, is what we know. It's a little fuzzy. Um, his style is this kind of casual populism. He never wear, he hardly ever wears a suit. He when he ran for election, he rallied against the old political parties, saying they were corrupt and behind the times. And he had this young charisma to him, but. 
as he's taken power, he's had these very authoritarian tendencies. He went into their legislative chamber once with armed soldiers flanking him. He, uh, he has one of the strictest COVID policies in the world that if you are caught not social distancing, you are confined for 30 days. And there was some issue with the Supreme Court saying he needed legislative permission to do this. And his response was, I do not care about the opinion of five people. And he just went right ahead. And you and I have talked about this. We're seeing this around the world. These young, charismatic millennials well, a, taking control. a little bit of harder edge than we would have thought. Um, you right. know, you look at uh, 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 Bin Salman in, in Saudi Arabia. You look at uh, certainly. I mean, <laughs> he has a he has a very hard edge. Uh, but 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 even looking at the uh, you know the new chancellor of Austria, uh, who actually implemented and supervised a very early and pretty strict. Uh, containment policy. Uh, this is Sebastian Kurtz, and yes. and uh, and and Austria is actually one of the real success stories, along with Germany. At at you know they can now begin to open up again uh, in a in a in a fairly good conscience. I I think we're going to see more of this. I mean, uh, yeah, walking into uh, a parliament or a chamber of deputies with troops. I mean, it reminds you of um, Oliver Cromwell or Napoleon. You know, I mean that's that's yeah. that's the look, right? <laughs> Uh, telling these uh, corrupt uh, democratic institutions to go back to work. Well, the whole idea of declining millennial uh, faith in democracy, particularly when it doesn't perform, is something we've talked a lot about. And we've gone over the research, particularly from Yasha Monk at Harvard, on uh, how millennials really don't care about the niceties of, of, uh, of due process and sort of parliamentary procedure. Uh, as long as, uh, you know, you either perform or you don't perform. It's, you know, certainly the way it has performed uh, uh, hasn't really worked well for them in terms of uh, national choices, I think you could say. So right. uh, that's an interesting case. I see we see, um, yeah, we mentioned uh, Macron. Um, uh, I guess uh, the interesting news from France with Emmanuel Macron is um, – La France en marche, uh, fears a breakup, is that correct? Yeah, there was a report in a local paper in Paris that a new 58-member center-left group was going to be created in Parliament, and many of these members were going to come from En Marche, and they were supposedly members who were unhappy with Macron's leadership. And... The Macron and the party leaders have sent out memos telling their legislators to be strong. This is a time we need unity. But it seems that there really could be a breakaway. But as we've said, you know, the French parliament has a lot of very small parties. So even if they let, lost 58 members, they would still be the biggest party within the parliament by yeah, far. Yeah, by far. And uh, look, I mean, I've always been amazed at Emmanuel Macron has been able to um, to manage as well as he has. Uh, of all countries in Europe, uh, France is one of the worst for being divided ideologically into extreme right and extreme left. I've showed that in, in many surveys, and it makes it very difficult for someone on somewhere in the middle, kind of a, someone who has a reputation as a technocrat uh, and a you know neoliberal uh, to to to. To run the country, uh, he is approval ratings have generally not been very good. A lot of people in France despise him uh, from both sides. 
Uh, but he has managed to hang on pretty well. Um, I think uh, he's a close friend of uh, Matteo Renzi, uh, who is a similar kind of technocrat in, in Italy. And we saw how short Matteo Renzi's tenure was. Uh, he tried a constitutional referendum and was brutally voted down, interestingly, by younger people uh, who, uh, you know, did not, uh, thought he was up to a power grab and sort of he's, he's been relegated to insignificance. This is a very difficult for countries like uh, France and Italy. Uh, it's very difficult for a technocrat to maintain power, although you know, we have uh, Conte, who's who's not doing a bad job right now during the crisis. So we'll have to see where that goes. Um, so so there we are. Uh, I can't remember what else we have on our agenda. I'm, I'm looking back here. I think we were going to talk about uh, China relations with the U.S. and a little scuffle that was going on in Australia. Yeah, maybe we'll end on that. That's not a, that's kind of a depressing place to end. Uh, but, <laughs> well, you know, the 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 Australia uh, as I understand it, and you can maybe describe that, but Australia is uh, is trying to formally lodge an investigation uh, on China's role in covering up COVID-19. Uh, and, um, you know, I don't know, what are they doing? Suing for damages or something? Is this a little bit, uh, is this in concert with the Trump White House on this? So what they're doing is they are trying to submit a proposal proposal to the WHO for an investigation into the virus's origins in China. And it's a little unclear where this will end up, but the US and UK have both said they support this proposal, which, uh, as you can expect, China is not happy about this. And earlier in April, April, they threatened that if this proposal is brought forward, they will stop buying Australian agricultural products. And this Monday, uh, China basically stopped buying almost all beef imports from Australia. Now, they've claimed this is on health concerns, but everyone sees this as a retaliation, as Australia has said they are going forward with the proposal. Yeah, well, that's, that's China's style is to, is to beat up hardest on the littlest guy. I mean, you know, and, and actually this is, uh, you know, so if you're some tiny little country, I mean, they will they will really... <laughs> <laughs> they will really yeah. snub you. You know, Australia is kind of there in the middle, I guess, for them. Um, uh, uh, look, uh, uh, I think the whole world has been um, has looked very dimly at China's new assertiveness on this. They seem to have a very thin skin. They feel that their national pride is at stake. Um, and there is a rising nationalism in China. As I would say, there is actually some sign of rising nationalism uh, in the United States, uh, possibly in other places as well. I know in Europe now, attitudes toward China are becoming much more contested, uh, particularly since uh, at the request of the uh, Italian foreign minister at the uh, EU, they toned down that report about uh, you know how China had contributed to the uh, uh, you know COVID nineteen epidemic uh, uh, at the request of of Italy, um, Italy being. Um, <coughs> Italy being uh, uh, particularly the Five Star Movement being more beholden to China, often just directly financially beholden. But this is now becoming newly controversial. Um, what really worries me is the uh, severe deteriorating relationships uh, between 
between the United States and China. I mean, we have Pompeo with the Wuhan virus. Uh, there's, by all estimations, there's a uh, ramping up of hacking wars, disinformation campaigns. Uh, we see a huge movement in China to actually implement anti-American propaganda into video games. Um, the the White House is actively pushing to uh, pushing companies to de-invest in China, de-link their supply lines from uh, 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 supply chains from China. This whole scuffle over canceling U.S. debt, I mean, which is unbelievable. Uh, it obviously didn't get anywhere. Uh, and now this new move to look into the origins of uh, SARS. Um, I actually think there may be more to this, as anyone listens to my COVID-19 show. I think there actually is something to the story uh, that that part of the story behind COVID-19 might be um, uh, uh, experimentation uh, on uh, on viruses. It's 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 very hard to explain um, how you got uh, such a <laughs> a hybrid virus. I mean, you could just tell by actually looking at the um, at at the you know, at the, at the, at the RNA itself. Uh, and, and, and we've looked at that. I, I think there are some big questions about how that virus was created. We do not know anything close to a direct ancestor to this virus. And we also know that part of what makes it actually spread more easily and more dangerous as a virus, uh, is something that it was directly being investigated, uh, by Chinese scientists and who had actually uh, suggested uh, actually inserting it, actually doing a RNA insertion. I just think we may never know. Uh, it will probably be years will go by and we will either find an ancestor eventually that makes it look like this was natural after all, or maybe eventually we will come to the conclusion that actually probably was the result of experimentation, innocent experimentation. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, uh, something that happened to to deliberate scientific intervention. Uh, we also see Taiwan, uh, who's actively trying to get uh, status as an observer member, just an observer member of the WHO, uh, and being actively opposed by China, of course, who believes that Taiwan should not be able to do anything on its own until it is absorbed um, you know, by the Borg, you know, so absorbed yeah. by China. And air and naval pressure on Taiwan is is uh, heating up. I mean, every other day, uh, Taiwan has to scramble its jets. I mean, they're 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 tracing the outlines of China with their jets. They're they're uh, increasing the number of naval vessels they're putting into the strait. And interestingly, a new poll just came out uh, showing that an unprecedented share of Taiwanese uh, now consider themselves Taiwanese instead of Chinese. Um, historically, the Taiwanese have totally been considered themselves Chinese. And in fact, all the nationalists who came around with Chiang Kai-shek were, were just, you know, transplanted Chinese. Uh, no one ever thought about being Taiwanese before. But in this new poll, 66% of uh, people in Taiwan say they are Taiwanese, not Chinese. And that's 83% of everyone under age 30. So you can see a generational gradient there and, and President Tsai Ing-wen, who's you know sort of symbolizing this sort of covert or unannounced resistance uh, to China's aggression. 
uh, is, I guess you could say, a leader of that trend. So, well, there you have it. Uh, I think we've covered the gamut. Uh, we've been around the world. We've talked about COVID-19. We've talked about debt. Is there anything we haven't talked about? I don't know. But I don't think so. All right. Well, it's uh, as ever, it's uh, been great to be with you all. Uh, stay tuned uh, if you can get to it. Our COVID-19 call on Thursday. We will be back with you uh, next week. Till then, and Neil Howe, Demography Unplugged. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Demography Unplugged. If you like what you've heard and want to dive deeper, I've got some good news for you. I'm offering a special research service for subscribers. It provides unique insights you won't see anywhere else. Deep dive analysis, charts, videos, and much more. It's designed to help professionals and investors uncover hidden trends and critical developments driving world markets and economies. You can learn more about it online at www.hedgeye.com or you can just Google Demography Unplugged. You can also follow me on Twitter at HowGeneration. That's H-O-W-E Generation. This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient provided access by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com.